you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 16. We finished up our series through uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, last year we started a series through the book of Acts. And we made it through Acts chapters 1 through 15 before uh, the summer. And then uh, we, we decided to pick back up with Acts. And so we're working through, this is the second week that we're working through <clears throat> back in the book of Acts. And so this week we're in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 40. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in front of you in one of the seats. If not directly in front of you, uh, to the left or right there. And you're welcome to take that and keep that paper Bible if you'd like it, uh, if you don't own one. And, and so that's a gift if you want to use that. Um, and then... If if you'd rather have a, a a different Bible and you need some recommendations, uh, we always get some study Bibles and things like that, and so we uh, would love for you to have one if you want one. Well, just to put us into context, uh, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas started a missionary journey, and on their second missionary journey, they decided to go back and to visit all the places where they had started churches and where they had shared the gospel and won people to faith in Christ. And then Barnabas wanted to take his cousin Mark, and because he had abandoned them the first time around, Paul uh, said, uh, no way, we're not taking taking Mark because he abandoned us. And, And so Barnabas and Paul had a very sharp disagreement, and they separated. And so Paul took Silas, and then he went uh, north into modern-day Turkey. And upon his arrival there, he met Timothy. And so he took Timothy, and he became part of the team. And as we pointed out last week in verse 10, um, the pronoun we is introduced, and so that lets you know that Luke joined the team. So now we have a team of missionaries, uh, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, and these four are traveling together. And I think I might even have a map. Um, Do I have a map there? Yeah, you might even have one of these in the back of your Bible. They started here in Antioch. And this is his second missionary journey, but this is home base over here. And they worked their way through the interior of this area called Galatia. And right up here um, near Asia, they intended to go south. And you remember the text from last week, it said they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia. And then they were prevented by the Spirit of Jesus to go north and so they didn't know where to go, so they made their way through Mysia to the little coastal town Troas. And there, they had a, Paul had a vision. And it was a person from Macedonia who was saying, come over and help us. And so from Troas right here, uh, they crossed the sea over here into Apollonia and Philippi right there at the top. And so that's where we find ourselves today in response to this Macedonian vision, a person saying, come over here and help us. And so today's passage, we have the results of that Macedonian vision. What happens when God leads the mission team uh, to go to a certain place? What do you expect would happen? 
I think what we expect to happen is that there will be a people who are prepared to hear the gospel. And we call these divine appointments. Uh, That may be the title for today's uh, sermon. Uh, I think there's a slide about uh, divine appointments there. If you're not sure what a divine appointment is, um, it's a life-changing encounter between two people. Uh, We call these divine appointments when, when somebody who is not yet a believer, but somebody who is seeking God, somebody who is asking the deeper questions of life, is there more to this life? Um, Why do I feel empty? Why do I have a hard time having a deep connection with God? And what is the purpose of my life? When people begin to ask those kinds of questions or when circumstances bring people to a low point and they begin to pray and they begin to ask and they begin to seek, we call these divine appointments when God is preparing someone's heart to hear the message of the gospel or the message of Jesus. And at the same time that God is doing that work of preparing them, uh, He's also preparing somebody who's willing to share um, that message of Jesus. And they put, he, God puts them together miraculously, two people together at just the right time and in just the right circumstances, so that one person hears about Jesus from the person who knows Jesus. And I, I'm enthralled by these stories. Some of my favorite stories to read in Christian biographies are how God weaves circumstances together so that a person comes to faith in Christ. We've already seen a few of these in the book of Acts. If you're looking for a biblical example, uh, just last uh, spring when we started in Acts uh, in chapter 8, you'll remember that when Stephen uh, was martyred for his faith, and a great persecution spread out, and Paul um, laid his everybody laid their garments at, at Paul's feet while they stoned Stephen to death. That as a result of that mass persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem, believers scattered all over Israel, and Philip went preaching the gospel, and the Holy Spirit told Philip, "Run down to the road leading to Africa." Uh, to the south and so he ran there and when he got there at just the right time the spirit says go run next to that chariot and just as he's pulling up jogging next to the chariot in Acts chapter 8 it says that the Ethiopian eunuch just happened to be reading Isaiah 53 and in Isaiah 53 it's this prophet's message and he says he gets to this point and this eunuch is reading it out loud and he says uh, just like a lamb was led to the slaughter, uh, and, and, and he's um, asking this question, and he asks, uh, uh, Philip says, who, who, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, who's the prophet writing about? And so Philip shares the message about Jesus from right there in Isaiah 53. The eunuch stops the chariot, and he says, there's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And they get out, and Philip baptizes him, And this is one of these divine appointments when at just the right time, under just the right circumstances, the Holy Spirit leads a believer who knows the message of the gospel to the door or to the path of the person who needs to hear it. And here today in Acts uh, chapter 16, we have three of these divine appointments. And there are three very separate and different people. We have Lydia. She's a wealthy businesswoman. We have this slave girl who is possessed by a demon. 
and then we have a Roman jailer. These are three individuals that are the fulfillment of Paul's Macedonian vision. When he was way over in Troas, he had a vision of the Macedonian person saying, come over and help us. And so they went in obedience and directly came there. And God had prepared people to hear the gospel message. And God had prepared Paul and his team to share the message of the gospel. And these three people and their circumstances couldn't have been more different. Uh, Tim Keller published this uh, graph uh, that demonstrates this. We have the three converts on the left, Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. And you can see how different they are in all these different ways. Ethnically, Lydia was an Asian. Uh, she was from an area uh, which, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, the slave girl was a native Greek girl, and then the jailer was a Roman. Economically, Lydia was independent and wealthy. Uh, the slave girl, of course, was poor, and then the Roman jailer would have been a blue-collar worker. Uh, spiritually, Lydia was seeking God. She was actually a category of what's known as a God-fearer. That is, she was not Jewish, she was not from Israel, uh, but she attached herself to a synagogue, um, not in Philippi, but where she's from, and um, and as such, she heard the Old Testament and the message of uh, of, of the Old Testament from and the books of Moses and all those things in synagogue. And so she was what's called a God-fearer. Cornelius was also a God-fearer, if you remember from Acts chapter 11. And then her conversion took place through this public preaching of the gospel that Paul did at the riverside that we're about to read about. The slave girl, uh, you see, she was tormented by evil spirits. And her conversion experience or her deliverance experience was this dramatic exorcism that we're about to read about. And then, of course, the jailer, um, you can see the details about him, but he comes to faith in Christ when Paul and Silas are in prison singing. And these conversion experiences that we see here in Acts chapter 16 really bonded Paul and his team to these people who gave their life to Christ. And just by example of that, in the letter that Paul wrote to them much later in his life, it's the book called Philippians, and it's to the believers at Philippi. Uh, just listen to what Paul writes to them later on. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God every time I think of you. Isn't that beautiful? Always, in every prayer of mine for you, I make this prayer with joy because you have partnered with me in the gospel from day one until now. And I am positive of this, that the one who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, because you are partakers with me of grace, both when I was imprisoned and now in my defense and in the confirmation of the gospel. Philippians 1.8, he finishes this little section I read today. And he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was bonded to them. He had a unique connection to them in that as he presented the gospel, he could see the Holy Spirit moving in their life and opening their eyes and opening their ears to hear the gospel and seeing their lives transformed and being able to spend a few weeks with them. And maybe you've experienced this. 
Maybe somewhere in your past, a particular missionary um, or a particular evangelist or a pastor or, or just a friend, somebody who has led you to faith in Jesus gave you a bond that is almost unbreakable. A couple of summers ago, we baptized a girl named Nicole. And Nicole, in the weeks and weeks leading up to her baptism, as we started to talk about how she got saved, she, she talked about her friend Tiffany Swartley, uh, who's up in the sound booth today. And Tiffany began, uh, Nicole just carried with her basic doubts and struggles and difficulties and and Tiff kept showing up at the gym and they would talk and 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 they would debate a little bit and and Nicole brought difficult questions and hard things that she was going through and doubts that she didn't yet believe in Jesus and 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 even one time remarked Tiff why are why are you friends with me we don't believe anything like each other and Tiff just you know said because I love you and and when Nicole told this story at that baptism it was so moving, so powerful, the way in which Tiff loved her, even as an unbeliever. And that bond that they share in Christ is the similar kind of bond that Paul and Silas must have felt toward Lydia. Matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 4, um, he thanks them for their overabundance of generosity and gifting, which certainly would have included Lydia. Well, let's get back into the text and get to the text. And I'm just going to make remarks along the way. Sometimes I just read all the text and then close with a couple of points. But but this time I just want to, want to work through the text. And so, uh, Tiff, if you can get back to that map slide. Uh, I don't know why we have this, um, you know, these travel itineraries. But starting in verse 11, it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Samothrace was this uh, towering island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And it says, The following day we went on to Neapolis. Neapolis was the port city about 10 miles inland uh, on the coast, and 10 miles inland was Philippi. Uh, and verse 12 tells us, From there we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in the city some days. This is the only um, city which is called a Roman colony in the New Testament. I think there are six total, but this is the only one that's identified here in Scripture as a colony, and that shows you something of the transitional nature of this particular city. A very famous city. Uh, You probably know from history um, that um, Macedonia was founded by Alexander the Great's uh, Philippi was founded by Alexander the Great's father, um, Philip II, and uh, and he um, launched this as a base for operations. And so Alexander the Great, um, much of his conquests uh, had their home base there because it was a place rich in gold. It was taken over by uh, the Romans, I believe, in 62 B.C., and uh, and then it became important in 42 B.C., after Brutus and Cassius murdered Caesar and fled. Do you remember the Etu Brute scene from Shakespeare, right? Um, they, Brutus and Cassius left, and they became a battle place there in Philippi 42 years before Christ. 
This is an important city, and it's an important city uh, not only because it had a high military presence, but because it was a leading city. And so Paul uh, and Luke makes note of their travel itinerary. And I said, I don't know why we always have these uh, travel itineraries, and you're going to get maybe a little bit tired of them when we get into Acts chapters 20 through 28. The last eight chapters of Acts are like, and then we sailed here, and then we sailed there, and then a snake bit my hand, and then this happened, and then I went to jail, and then I spent three years, you know, it's these kind of travel itineraries. And as I started to ask myself the question, what is so important about these travel itineraries? Why do we have these? Couldn't Luke have just skipped over some of the boring information? It's like if I went on a flight and I told you, and then I drove to, you know, to the Philadelphia airport, and then I parked in airport parking C, and then I got on the bus, and then I got on the bus, and from the bus, I went to the walking sidewalk, and then from the walking sidewalk, I went to gates. You know, nobody wants to know all these details, right? Why include where they went and when? I think it's important because it demonstrates that the gospel is grounded in reality and in a map. You can actually go to these places today and you can see archaeological and sociological evidence that demonstrate the results of what Paul and Silas did in these places. Luke is so detailed as an accurate historian and as a doctor, and as what we would think of as an investigative journalist. If you read the beginning of Luke chapter 1 and the beginning of Acts chapter 1, Luke is hired by this guy Theophilus, a wealthy Greek patron, who has asked Luke to go and investigate the details of what he has heard about Jesus. And so Luke writes these two exposés, these two historical narratives where he interviews a lot of people, eyewitnesses. And so it's important for Luke to get all these details right. And oftentimes archaeology proves Luke to be right and this account to be accurate. That gives us confidence. That gives us confidence that the Bible and the truth of the gospel are grounded in reality and in the location. And you can go there and you can see the evidence of these things. Let's look at the next slide because we want to get to these three conversion stories. In verse 13, Paul writes, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. In other places in Acts, Paul usually goes to where first? To the synagogue. But there's no synagogue in Philippi, which gives us some insight. It took ten men to form a synagogue. And so because there weren't ten men, there's a loose group of people meeting, and they meet not often in a building. Um, uh, My archaeological study Bible says that because so few synagogues exist that date to the first century, it's likely that most synagogues of the day throughout Europe were not separate formal buildings, but rather they were designated rooms within private homes or even outdoor locations. And they met by the riverside because it was an important part of their weekly gathering to do these ritualistic purification ceremonies that used a lot of water. In every synagogue, there was a place where they had water stored. Do you remember when Jesus went to the wedding at Cana in Galilee? And the, the, his mom said, uh, you know, we ran out of wine. And the, his mom said, ask Jesus, he'll know what to do. And so they take these six ceremonial washing pots, these big things. And Jesus does what? He takes this enormous six jars of water that would have been used for ceremonial cleansing. And he transforms it into this wedding wine. 
Every synagogue would have had these things. And so there, we know there wasn't a synagogue because there weren't ten men and they were meeting by the riverside that contributed to these, <clears throat> this ritualistic purification uh, ceremonies. The important thing for us to know here is that Paul and the team went to the most obvious place where those who were seeking God and those who were most ready to hear and receive the gospel were located. Who better for them to start sharing the gospel with than those who were already exposed to the Old Testament, to the Word of God? They wouldn't have known what the New Testament was. They would have only known the Scriptures. But these are people who feared God, were seeking God, and were understanding and hearing the Word of God over and over and over again. And so Paul went to them. If I asked you, where would you go to find seekers today? Where would you go? Where in your community? Where in your township would you go to find people who might be open to the gospel? Missionally, these are questions that we ask ourselves in the process of church planting. It's a two processes called exegeting a community and scouting a community. We'll get to scouting when we get into Acts chapter 18, but, but this is the process of, of prayer walking a city like Paul does in Athens. And as he's walking through Athens, he's noticing all these temples and all these idols and all these people who are ready to talk. And so he, he goes to a place called the Areopagus, and that's a place where he has an open hearing, and he's quoting their poets and he's talking about their idols to an unknown god and paul goes to the place where people are most likely to be the most receptive to the gospel where is that for you when we first moved to this area uh, there was a large church in our community that had a big play zone thing a big structure tower in a coffee shop inside and i would often go there to study during the week and dozens of times I had gospel conversations with people who had gathered in this public place or public parks uh, in different places like that. Hospitals, recovery groups, libraries, community gatherings, township meetings. Where is it that you can be more strategic if your desire is to share the gospel in the community in which God has placed you? Verse 14 tells us that as Paul was there at the riverside, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The gospel is first preached and received by women here in Philippi. Tony Marita says about this, he says, I can't help but admire the number of godly women in the book of Acts. Some of them mentioned by name. Uh, soon in the coming chapters, we'll be reading about the leading women of Thessalonica in chapter 17, verse 4. In chapter 17, verse 12, we read of the women of high standing in Berea. In chapter 17, verse 34, Damaris in Athens and Priscilla in Corinth in chapter 18, verse 2. All of these inclusions remind us that the early missionary movement was not directed at males only. And I mention this because there is a debate going on in our nation, in Christian circles, about the value and the role of women in ministry. And I want you to hear it here first and clearly that Acts supports and strengthens the reality that women and their ministries and their influence is incredibly powerful 
and useful to God in the building of His kingdom. I also want you to know that the Bible clearly teaches that men and women have equal value to God. They're equally loved, equally used by God. But I also want you to see that the Bible is really clear about the roles in the local church that men can serve in and roles that women serve in and roles that are limited to men versus not all roles being open to both men and women. And we would recognize those offices as pastor and elder that are limited to men alone. But that in no way devalues women and that in no way demonstrates that women don't have an active ministry. You would have to black out sections of your Bible. You would have to tear pages out of your Bible to show, or if you, if you wanted to deny that God uses women powerfully. And we see that here particularly with Lydia. And I also want you to see that um, the speculation here, or the, the inference we can make here, is that she was very wealthy. And I get this because this idea of selling purple goods uh, was, you know, it was a fabric that was meant for kings. And the reason for that was um, on the Mediterranean shores around Greece, there was a mussel, a little shell kind of fish that grew. And it was very dangerous. Have you ever been to Greece? Anybody ever been to Greece? Very a couple of you, a handful of you. These jagged, rocky shorelines where the, the waves are crashing in, they would have to dive 20 feet or more deep in these little areas along the shoreline and painstakingly search for these little shells, which they could uh, collect. And once they got them um, up onto the shore, there was a process by which they would extract a purple ink from them, drops from one, just a couple of drops. And so in order to dye an entire outfit or fabric or shirt or whatever it is they're selling, they would have to catch hundreds or thousands of these mussels. And the process of it was difficult and it was dangerous. I don't like to go in the ocean. I'm afraid of sharks. Um, so I can't imagine this being a good fit uh, for me, but but there's a reason why it was only for those who were very wealthy. And so for uh, Lydia to be a seller of these purple goods gives us some sort of insight into her financial situation. But even in her situation, she was seeking God because she still did not, she, even though it might have seemed that she had everything, money-wise, there was something in her heart that yearned for more. And so as she gathered with other seekers at the riverside, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. And I want you to hear this point. Hearing from God is a miraculous event. Not everyone today actually hears God speaking to them through His Word. Jesus gave us insight into the process in Mark when he talked about the parable of the sower, and he said that as the word of God is cast out like a seed, some of it falls on a hard path. And it just does not penetrate the person's heart. Week in, week out, uh, from my vantage point, I see people, and, and I see people who are dialed in on the edge of their seat, nodding and agreeing, listening, looking up, taking notes. Thing. And I see people who would rather be anywhere but here. And I, I get that. I've been in both places, both situations in my life as well. 
But not everybody here today hears God speaking to them. They may hear my words, but but not everybody hears in their spirit or in their ears God listening. But the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she heard the word. She heard the word and she took heed to it. She paid attention to it. And she received the gospel. Verse 15 says that after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia had influence and then she went and shared the same gospel message with Paul and Silas and the team to all those involved in her oikos. And oikos was a term we introduced in uh, Acts 11, and it's the word for household, and it's not the same word for family. Later in this chapter, uh, Paul and Silas will preach to the Philippian jailer and his family, a different Greek word. And oikos included anybody, friends, family, vendors, servants, employees, anyone closely or loosely associated with the day-to-day business and life and person of Lydia were involved in this presentation of the gospel. We heard that when uh, Cornelius, a centurion, invited Peter to come and speak. And a couple days later, when Peter got there and he spoke to the crowd that was gathered, they identified who was in the crowd, and it was not his family, but his oikos. We see her response. It's not just faith. She believes in Jesus. She puts her faith in Jesus. She gets baptized. Her whole household, all those involved, also respond to the gospel. But her response after faith is hospitality and generosity. She was adamant that they receive a blessing and some provision from her. And I want you to think about this. A mark of a redeemed person is the God-given desire to give back. Somebody who has been prepared to hear the gospel message, the good news, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry, and they're desperately seeking, and they're desperately desiring to hear hope and truth, once they receive that, you know, Jesus described it as a man who went and sold everything that he had to buy the field that contained that treasure. A mark of a redeemed person is the God-given desire to give back. Do you remember little Zacchaeus when Jesus looked at him in the tree and said, I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus said, "Um, today in the hearing of everybody, I give back half of my possessions. And if I've defrauded anybody, I will repay them four times the amount. Listen, that kind of generosity comes from a heart that's been regenerated. A stingy heart, a heart that holds on to your possessions and holds on to all your things, that's one of the hallmarks of what it means just to be a regular person in the world. But, but believers who have experienced the transformational power of the gospel want to give, and this is true of Lydia. Her first act of worship was to give generously. Let's look at the next slide, and we're going to get into the next conversion story. Verse 16 says that as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This slave girl, she's possessed by a demonic spirit, and it's described as a spirit of divination. This particular demonic spirit enables this girl to predict and know the future, and to know secret things about people um, through whom this demonic spirit um, 
either tells her or speaks through her. She is a slave owned by men who used her for financial gain. And she's also a slave of Satan. And I can't think of a more um, sad existence in the Roman Empire than for someone to be not only in slavery to these men who are extorting her financially, but also to be a slave of Satan and to be filled and tormented and oppressed by this demonic spirit. And these men shamelessly benefit from her affliction. Can you imagine benefiting personally from financially from somebody's satanic oppression? How this poor girl must have suffered day in and day out. And verse 17 tells us that she saw Paul and Silas and she followed them and she would cry out, I'm assuming as she walked behind them, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. You know, maybe at first Paul was like, this is kind of nice. Here's a local and they don't know me. And this person is, you know, drumming up uh, listeners and people are being attracted and they're hearing something different from this slave girl who's predicting the future and and is probably well known in the community there in Philippi. And now she's saying something different. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Maybe Paul thought that was nice for a little while, but the text tells us in verse 18 that Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. The principle I want to make here is that even demonic spirits serve God and His greater purposes. You have no cause to be afraid if you are in Christ of demons or dark spirits I preached about this in Genesis chapter 6, about the Nephilim and all that stuff when it came down. And I described how Satan has, C.S. Lewis describes how Satan has these two sort of objectives for us. And one is that we would be overly infatuated with all things dark and demonic and mystic and spiritual. And that the other error on the other side was that we would deny them at all. Jesus in his own ministry had encounters with those who were demon-possessed. But this did not drive Jesus' focus or his ministry attention. Jesus encountered these people and delivered them and moved past it. And there's a warning for us here not to become infatuated with demonic things. You can lose yourself if you're constantly looking for darkness and demons at the expense of just pursuing Jesus. I've met so many believers who get sidetracked in this sort of demon hunting behind every corner, behind every person, behind every word, behind everything. There's, a, there's got to be a demonic presence. It's just not always true. Even if there were demonic presence in uh, somewhere, even those demonic spirits serve God and His greater purposes. 
You see that in Job. They come to present themselves before God. Even Satan comes. And, and Satan has to answer to God. You see it in many places in Scripture where these demons are subject to God and they can't go past the boundaries. They're on a leash and they can't go past that without God's permission. In a passage about testing the demonic spirits, uh, the spirits of people, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 1-4, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He says, Many false prophets go out into the world, and, and by this you'll know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Paul and Silas were not afraid of this demonic spirit, and they commanded it to come out, and this little girl was delivered. Verse 19, uh, the owners, when they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is, why weren't they outraged that she was possessed by a demon, right? Why weren't they outraged that she was oppressed? Why weren't they outraged that she was a slave or that she was owned? They weren't angry. They weren't upset at all until God delivered her from her oppression. And their opportunity for wealth was gone. Which leads us into this next conversion experience, this next divine appointment. Verses 20 through 24. When those owners of this girl brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, they said to them, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And listen to how violent it gets. The magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is a violent attack against Paul and Silas. Tore off their garments, beat them with rods, inflicted many blows on them, threw them into prison. How would you respond? What if you were physically tortured because of your faith in Jesus? Just a few weeks ago, I was reading uh, about a man who came to faith in Jesus from Yemen. And while he was at a university studying law there, he noticed something about one of his other classmates, and they were a part of similar clubs and groups, and there was just something different about him. And the more time he spent with him, uh, the more he realized that he wasn't a practicing Muslim. And then the more time he spent with him, he eventually uh, was invited to go to a, a secret gathering of Christians. And through this influence, this Yemeni's uh, law student put his faith and trust in Jesus. His hometown was a few hours away where his family raised horses, and his younger sister had some kind of a disease that affected her organs and would oftentimes um, 
leave her paralyzed and without any energy and unable to do anything. It caused her skin to yellow, and, and she would um, she would sort of blo- uh, bloat out, and, and she was just not healthy at all. But she had a dream that her brother was coming, and that when her brother came, they would go talk by this little stream side that they would go see and visit often when he came. But she had this dream in which there was a glowing man in the stream with them. And so when her brother came home from school, he carried her, helped her out of bed and carried her down to the stream uh, where they could talk privately. And, and he began to share his faith in Jesus with her and he presented the gospel to her. And that's when she said, I had this dream. And she told him all about the dream. And she immediately put her faith and trust in Jesus and she was baptized. And it says, when she went down into the water and came out, she felt this glowing man touch her and her illness went away and she made a complete and full recovery. In the months that passed, she became more and more bold with her faith as doctors tried to figure out what happened. How did you get healed? And she would say, God did it. And they would say, oh, thank Allah or whatever. And she would say, no, 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 Isa, Thank Isa. Isa is the one who healed me and touched me. And she, she would go, off on this story and they would go into these secret church gatherings and one Sunday they went to the secret church meeting and and as they approached the door there would be a sign a vase with a lot of flowers and if all the flowers were taken it meant that it was um, not safe to go in they'd been followed and uh, they would have to reconvene somewhere else at a different time but this particular time all the flowers were there so they walked upstairs, and they went into the secret room. They began to fellowship with other believers. They began to sing. They began to pray when all of a sudden the secret force um, broke down the door, lined up everybody, and began to, one by one, execute them if they didn't renounce their faith in Jesus. And his sister was one of them. Killed everybody in the home church except for him. And he found out that his parents had turned them in But because he was studying to be a lawyer, they had asked the officers to take him to a secret prison where they tortured Christians and tried to re-educate them to renounce their faith in Jesus. And he spent four weeks there and day after day endured these torture sessions. And the graduation from this place where they held him was four weeks. At the fourth week, on the Friday of the fourth week, whoever was there that amount of time was taken out. And he described that every day they would give them this sort of gruelly, soupy, mosh stuff and that the believers would gather in the cell and they would observe the communion with this slop. And then on the day before that Friday when the oldest, longest tenured believer was there, they would all give their food to him and pray for him and they would say, we're fasting so that you may finish strong. This Yemenese believer described this as a sort of boot camp discipleship where they would worship and pray and sing and recite scripture and encourage each other. And they would long for this Friday, if they couldn't get out, they would long for the Friday when they could finally go home to be with Jesus and to see their friends who had gone before them. On the Friday that this Yemenese believer, this law student, was to have his day, the prison was abandoned because of uh, some sort of an ISIS treatment.
truck drove by and took all the soldiers with him. And so they left them to go on some mission somewhere else. And they were stuck there for three days, crying out in this prison without food or without water or anything. When a five-year-old girl walked up with these keys and opened the door and uh, let this brother out of prison. And he said to the other believers, did you see the girl? Where did she go? And they said, there was no girl. We just, we just saw you talking. And the doors opened. It's this miraculous thing. The story went on and on, but <clears throat> listen, I read stories like that, and I, I picked up this book called uh, Jesus Freaks. Remember that DC Talk? Uh, that old book is like a devotional that had all these martyrs and people who suffered. Or the book, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin that describes the believers from around the world who suffer persecutions and beatings. Listen, those are believers that, frankly, I can't hold a candle to. I'll be lucky if I can carry, I was going to say their suitcase. I don't know if you have a suitcase in heaven, but, but, but these guys are incredible. And in some ways, I, you know, I thank God that no one is going to bust in these doors and arrest me and drag me out and beat me, you know, here in the field. But in other ways, I'm jealous over the level of love and gratitude and intimacy and courage and faith that these believers live out. This is the reality for Paul and Silas that we're reading about today. Every city they went to, rods, beatings, whips, imprisonment, persecution. How do you think you would respond if it was illegal for you to be a Christ follower? Would you still show up here today if you knew that someone was in the parking lot right now writing down your car information and and they were going to come to your office this week and persecute you or come to your home this week and persecute you? Would you still follow Jesus? Well, how do you think Paul and Silas responded to this? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and all the prisoners were listening to them. How did they respond? They worshiped. They worshiped. They accepted the good and bad circumstances of missionary life. They understood that these are gospel realities, that if Jesus was treated this way, then as his followers we should expect to be treated that way as well. We know that Jesus entered into suffering. Philippians 2 gives us the the diagram of Jesus being born of a woman, humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient to death on a cross, and God exalted him because of his humiliation. There's something about us when we suffer that we experience a more intimate connection with Jesus. Now I know that... Very few of you are saying, oh Lord, please let me suffer. Oh Lord, please bring on the trials and the difficulties and the, <clears throat> the horrible things. But, but when we experience these things and we press into Jesus, because Jesus suffered, we follow the same pathway that he was familiar with and he meets us there in a unique and special way. We are strengthened and we grow in intimacy through suffering as we abide in Christ faithfully. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. You've walked a painful road and you've had terrible things happening, but you still love Jesus and you still are walking with Him. Listen, Paul and Silas could have complained, right? 
They could have got a rock and banged on the, you know, let us out. They could have been really difficult. They could have just been quiet. They could have played the Roman citizen card, and they, and they will. <clears throat> they could have been a pain in the neck to the, the jailer, but they responded with worship and prayer. Verse 26 tells us how God responded. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And that would have been his punishment. would have been instant death if all the prisoners go free. And so he was going to beat them to his punishment. But Paul cried out, verse 28, with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, this jailer fell down before Paul and Silas. And he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the Lord, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. The jailer took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and baptized them at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What an incredible scene. Have you ever been woken up by an earthquake? I remember when that earthquake hit D.C. in like 2010 or 11. I'm sitting in my office on the second floor of this scuba dive shop on 611 and i just see the tv doing this wobbly motion and the stuff happening and i'm like what this is my first and only earthquake that i've ever been through have you ever anybody ever been through an earthquake imagine being in a serious earthquake so serious that it wrenches the iron bars off this prison and everybody is released i imagine it woke up the jailer's family i imagine it shook them up And this jailer, who was surely a hardened man, I don't know if you've ever met a prison guard. (laughs) One of my friends, uh, one of the kids that Grayson used to play baseball with, his dad was a prison guard. And he kind of looked like a prison guard. I mean, he was a hard guy to talk to and a tough guy. And and I asked him one time what that was like. and, And he told me a couple stories. This hardened prison man had tremendous compassion for Paul and Silas, didn't he? took him to his home, and from midnight until morning, he cared for their physical needs. Paul and Silas shared the gospel with everyone in their home. They were baptized immediately. The jailer fed them and cared for them. <clears throat> and Paul and Silas shared the word of God with them throughout the night. And to close out our text, verses 35 through 40, kind of comical here. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police and said, let those guys go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. So come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? This was a major offense. You couldn't do this to a Roman citizen. And so Paul could have said this on the front end when they started to beat him. He could have just easily said, We're Roman citizens. You can't do this. But he didn't. He endured the beating, went to prison, shared the gospel. The Philippian jailer and his household got saved. And only later, when they were trying to dismiss him from the city, did he say, Oh, by the way, we're Roman citizens, and, and now you want to just throw us out of prison secretly? No, make them come themselves and take us out. And so the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they became afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. 
So when they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let me give you just a couple of quick application points. Number one, commit to sharing your faith. God can use you in these divine appointments, but he will not use somebody who won't share their faith. If you're refusing to open your mouth and talk about Jesus, God will not lead you to somebody who's ready to hear about Jesus. If you're ready to share the gospel and you're eager and your eyes are open and you're sensitive to the Spirit, God will provide opportunities for you. I can remember recording 390 opportunities uh, in the year 2004 when I went throughout my day with this idea that God has somebody in my path today that needs to hear the gospel. And the first couple of months, it started out with just a couple a week, but by the end of it, it was dozens of people a week. 21 people saved and baptized that year. It was just a particular way in which you approach your day when you say, Holy Spirit, I know the gospel. And I know that out there, you've got somebody who needs to hear the gospel. Lead me to them. Listen, if you approach your days like that, just buckle up. You're going to see some incredible things. Second thing. Can God use you in a supernatural way like this? Can you be the blessed feet of the one who carries this good news? It's unlikely, highly unlikely, that you will ever experience the joy and thrill of being used by God in this way if you're not on mission and if you're not sharing the gospel but some sort of personal message, right? You get people who aren't sharing the gospel but they're sharing about some sort of conspiracy thing. People get passionate about all kinds of stuff. And they're going to tell you anything you want to know about something. But if the message on your mouth is the gospel, and you're prepared to share the gospel, and you're on mission to share the gospel, God can use you in these ways. But you can also be choked out because you're distracted by the worries and riches of the world. Jesus said that, The seed that fell among the thorns grew up. That means they became believers, but the thorns grew up with them and the vines choked them out. Why did they get choked out? Why did these believers not reproduce? Jesus said, because the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entered in and choked them out and they became unfruitful. But then there are those who... When the word is sown on good soil, they hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. What kind of soil are you? Are you hard soil, not hearing anything I'm saying today? Are you thorny soil that hears and files this away under it's a nice sermon with nice information, and you're just going to go on your way? Or are you a good soil here that will put this into practice? Asking God to use you. There may be a day in the future if you put this into practice where we set up the horse trough baptistry up here and and we're baptizing somebody. And just like Tiff with Nicole, Nicole is telling us, it's because of God using Tiffany Swartley that I put my faith in Jesus. That's my hope and prayer is that God uses you in this way. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the way in which you would have us to apply it. And I pray that today as we respond to your word, that you would would use this text, that you would use this message 
for your own glory and that you might draw us to yourself, giving us the same commitment to be filled with your Spirit, to accept the circumstances under which we find ourselves so that we may be gospel proclaimers to those who need to hear it. And so we pray that you would use us for your glory and use this church to build up your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.